This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to Sustaining Voices Podcast. Sourcing Journal Sustaining Voices celebrates the efforts the apparel industry is making towards securing a more environmentally responsible future through creative innovations, scalable solutions, and forward-thinking initiatives that are spinning intent into action. This podcast series is made possible by Cotton Incorporated, a not-for-profit company funded by U.S. cotton producers and importers whose mission is to increase the demand and profitability of cotton. Discover what cotton can do. Sustainability is one of the hottest topics in the apparel industry today. And while it's great that there's this awareness for the need for change, some say progress toward that goal is not keeping pace with the environmental threat of climate change. I'm Kalitha Crawford, publisher of Sourcing Journal, and today we'll be discussing fashion's progress in this area, the challenges holding it back, and the alternatives that could help the industry leap ahead. I'm joined today by Morton Lehman, Chief Sustainability Officer for the Global Fashion Agenda, a nonprofit leadership forum on sustainability in fashion, and Jeff Wilson, Senior Business Development Manager of Sustainability for NSF International, an independent organization that develops public health standards and certification programs to protect consumer products and the environment. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Good to be here. Jeff, we'll start with you. Um, how concerned should we be about climate change? And given the pace that the industry has taken thus far, is incremental change in fashion enough? Well, yeah, that's a that's a touchy subject. As we all know, globally, that can that can be uh, politically charged. It can be ideologically charged and very personal. But my belief is that the science is in. And that we should be concerned, very concerned about climate change, and that not just our industry, but every industry needs to be doing more and needs to be doing more at a faster pace. When you look at the things associated with, you know, the 1.5 goal and the timing in which the IPCC uh, indicates that it needs to be done to avoid some of the impacts associated with climate change. It's just not progressing at the pace that it needs to. And our industry, absolutely not. Um, We have picked around the edges of this subject, regardless of climate change, for far too long. I've been doing this for 15 years. And I I do believe that we we are, we, we miss, we're missing really making this mainstream into all of our organizations uh, and I'll say this particularly at the brand side, it's still not mainstreamed into the C-suites, into the boards of directors, and in the investor community of our industry. So that's my guiding sort of principle there. 
Okay. And Morton, I know that your organization in the Pulse of the Fashion Industry Report that you do every year also kind of sounded an alarm saying that the pace of change was slowing. And in fact, that there needed to be, quote, a deeper and more systemic change happening in the industry. So what kind of prompted this recommendation that, hey, we should be doing more and it needs to be kind of more entrenched? Yeah, it's similar. I mean, our recommendation came from the fact that we see that if the industry does not implement change at a faster rate, we will not be able to meet neither the Paris uh, Agreement or the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So what we are seeing is actually that the industry and the solutions they're implementing right now, it's not enough to counterbalance the negative environmental and social impacts of the rapidly growing industry. I mean, we see an industry that's growing with around 80% in production towards 2030. So, I mean, we need, as as Neil said, we need, as Jeff said, sorry, we need really uh, much faster. We need to see a lot more of what's happening now, also the implemental stuff. But we also see more rapid um, things that, and, and more radical stuff than what we have seen. Mm-hmm. And just referring back to the report again, um, one of the findings was that the the pace actually had slowed by a third from 2018 to 2019. And so what does that mean? Are we moving in the wrong direction? I know, again, there's a lot of focus and visibility on sustainability these days, but why do you think that we're not moving faster instead of moving slower? Yeah, I mean, some would say that we're living in in the best and in the worst of times. On the one hand, it's amazing what we see on climate. I think it's unprecedented what we've seen in the last year in terms of setting really bold and ambitious targets. But we're still seeing around 40% of the industry doing almost nothing. But so so it's both. We we need, you know, the frontrunners to do even more. But we also need those players who are doing almost nothing to start really adopting radical things. Otherwise, we're not going to meet the, 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 the Paris uh, Agreement. But but I'm also seeing, I mean, this this week we have the Copenhagen Fashion Week. And what they're covering, what the media coverage is, is not the new collections. It's to talk about sustainability. So I think that's impressive. We're seeing that today was announced that in Sweden they have cancelled the Fashion Week because they're saying instead we're going to use that time to focus on what we can do on sustainability. None of this is enough. But there is a lot brewing that I have not seen before in, in the many years I've also worked in sustainability. Mm-hmm. So you use the word radical. What what types of changes have you seen that you would consider to be radical? Because we cover this a lot and there's a lot of you know companies, and not to minimize any efforts, but there's companies that are changing out light bulbs and things like that. And that's great. And I'm sure it has an impact. But what really is radical that you'd like to see more of? Yeah, I think one thing is is many bold ambitions and targets set on using truly sustainable materials. So that's not only organic cotton, but you know, going for the really sustainable materials. I think that's quite ambitious. We are seeing the scientific based targets, which I think is also ambitious because many of these targets are set without the brands knowing how to get there. So that's also showing true leadership. I mean, say we know we need to do that. We actually don't know how to do it, but we'll find out. We'll figure it out as we go. So I think some of these things is is progressive. I think it's also progressive that we see more and more companies being honest about how difficult it is and saying, you know, we know we need to get there. This is really difficult. And we need more of that honesty, that transparency about 
what is possible and where we need other players to chime in as well. Because there is a limit to what brands, even the biggest brands in the world, what they can do alone. We need that bigger ecosystem also to play that part and facilitate the transition to a more sustainable industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff, I know that one of the issues is that often, especially at the executive level, there may not be an awareness of exactly what's happening in the supply chain. They they vaguely kind of know, <laughs> but they're not necessarily spending time, you know, at a farm or in a factory. Um, so that kind of brings in traceability. Why is that important and what role does that play in sustainability? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is, um, let, let's take a moment here and and make sure everybody, this is really misunderstood, is there's a difference between transparency and traceability. And I'll start with transparency. Transparency is actually an awareness of all of your production through to raw material extraction. So it's knowing where and knowing who and what is coming from where. So as you mentioned, on the farm, knowing where your cotton is coming from to the spinner, to the, and I'll simplify this, to the spinner, to the weaver, to the die house and finisher, to finished goods and out to market. So in a sense, it's doing the, the a very, very important supply chain mapping, which very few, very few brands have done beyond quote unquote tier one finished goods. Some into tier two fabric mills, very rarely in the industry down to the, um, the spinner and a raw material uh, fiber production. So that's transparency. Traceability is taking the attributes. So let's say organic, right? Organic cotton and that important environmental attribute and making sure through a system and documentation that that organic cotton moves from the farm to the gin and that organic cotton moves from the gin to the spinner, et cetera, et cetera, and attracts it. So when it comes out the end of the quote unquote pipeline at finished goods, what X brand has bought and committed to is actually what's in the product. We are woefully, woefully inadequate on both transparency and supply chain mapping and our traceability systems and credibility and assurance for that, that that traceability provides. So why is it important? It's important because I think a couple of things. One is if you have both those transparency and traceability, you have the ability to document and measure the impacts you're having because you know exactly how much organic cotton you're using. And you also are able to credibly, authoritatively, with trust and assurance, convey that to all of your stakeholders. And I think in particular consumers, and that's a really important thing in this environment where honestly, there is a, a lack of trust and and that's not that's not a good thing. So I think both why is the importance why a brand would buy organic cotton? Well, there's a lot of different reasons, but certainly the most important reason is reducing the environmental impacts on farm and in phases of production as to why they're making that that buy and why they're making that investment. So that's my take on it. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously having organic inputs is is one way of being sustainable. NSF offers a sustainability boot camp. And so when you are dealing with companies and what from what you've seen with the companies that have entered the boot camp, Jeff, do you know what's the biggest learning curve for them typically when they're trying to start out and figure out how 
what it looks like for their company? Well, typically, and, and, and I worked for a medium brand for a long time, and I wasn't a one-man band, but typically small to medium brands are under-resourced from a financial and a human resource standpoint. So they're trying to do, do a lot. And again, this, this is typified by the lack of mainstream of sustainability, that it's at the margin. You wouldn't find that for marketing. You wouldn't find that for product creation. You wouldn't find that for accounting, et cetera, et cetera. So oftentimes, small to medium brands are under-resourced. So that's a that's a um, a hurdle. Number two is um is is sort of where where you know where is the in this a little bit to what we're talking about and getting this going. Where where do I start? What are the things that I should focus on, and how do I do that? And how do I do that strategically? Building a strategic plan because I mean that's the advice I always give because it's what I tried to do when I headed the sustainability division at the brand I work for is everything flows from a strategy and that strategy largely needs to be at least medium term, probably out three to five years. It needs to be time bound. It needs to be goal driven. And so where do I start? You know, how do I get that done? How do I sell it internally? How do I get the financial resources to support it? How do I champion other people in the organization to do it? So I think the boot camp to get to your question is, in my opinion, it's about where do you focus? How do you build a strategic plan? And how do you begin to execute within your organization? Build success stories. And I think, you know, to, I think the, per, generally the, the topic of this is how do I accelerate that and make it happen more quickly? So Morton, you know, whether it's the NSF bootcamp or whether it's some of the tools that Global Fashion Agenda offers, there's actually a lot of information and tools out there that didn't exist before. Um, so why is it you, you'd said earlier that, you know, there are still this percentage, this pool of fashion companies that aren't even on this road at all. They haven't started. Why do you think that is the case? Is it an inability, kind of going back to what Jeff was saying about being under-resourced, or is it in some cases an unwillingness to change? Yeah, I mean, I guess the usual answer you will get is that it's so complex, our industry. We have so many tiers, different materials, et cetera. We understaffed the competitive pressure, et cetera. But, but what we have done is saying, okay, this is what you're telling us. So we've developed something called the CEO agenda. And the CEO agenda is addressing the around 40% of CEOs who will say, we don't know where to get started. So for them, we have these four core priorities. And going back to what Jeff said, the, the first priority is traceability. I mean, this is a prerequisite. If you don't know where your stuff is made, it will be very hard to direct and allocate resources to where you have the, the big challenges. But anyway, these four priorities are to take that excuse away for any CEO who says, I don't know where to get started. So these are focusing on the areas where we have solutions that are ready to implement. But what we also heard when we've done the, all the research for the Pulse report is that there are also another group of people who say, you know, we've been working on sustainability for many years. And, you know, for us, the S-curve is becoming flatter. It's becoming more and more difficult for us alone as one band to really move on to the next S-curve. And for them, we have another set of transformational priorities. There is where brands need to say, okay, we can't do this alone. This is where they have to work together among their peers, also among the, the supply chain, and where often we need regulators to come in there to make sure that the investments and the incentive structures are actually playing their part to facilitate this, this transaction. So I think it, there is no one answer. Need, different solutions are needed for different players. And then back to, to one thing that was also said, resources. 
it is a tricky thing. This is a difficult thing, especially for many smaller players. But I would just say you can get along with not doing this for the next one or two years, but then you really have a steep hill to climb. So if you don't invest in it now, then it will be difficult because there will be regulation coming, there will be consumers, and the business-to-business markets will set more requirements here. So this is where you start thinking about the future and where you want to be also when this sets in big time. Right. So you're talking about collaboration, which was another theme of the report um, from your organization. Can you give me some examples of maybe companies that have come together in a very constructive way or, you know, just kind of give us an example of what you think would be, you know, an advantage to working together in the way that you're talking about? Yeah, I think for me, the best example of collaboration is the sustainable apparel collision. I mean, the sustainable apparel collision was was established because, you know, it was said, you know, we cannot solve these issues alone. And it is a business imperative for us to do something. Other, otherwise, our industry will not exist. I mean, we, we can't go alone. And the fact that this started out with Patagonia and Walmart going together, knowing that, you know, if we ride out, then everybody can see themselves in the spectrum from Patagonia and Walmart. And what they're doing is, I mean, listening to uh, to your uh, to your previous port- podcast today about the inefficiencies in all doing our own audits, what they have done is that they have created index for measuring the performance of sustainability for manufacturers, brands, and launching next year also for products. So that alone is a huge step forward, realizing that you know we cannot do all that work where we are going to a manufacturer and all brands are doing their own audits, which leads to huge inefficiencies and prevents many manufacturers from dedicating real time to doing real sustainability work. And instead, they're using all their time to answering audits. And also the fact that then in the end, to be able to have on the products a little thing in the next saying how sustainable that product is, I think will also be huge valuable. Right. So, I mean, I think we can agree that collaboration has its benefits, but Jeff, you know, this is a competitive industry. How much does that competition and that need to protect margins and, you know, you know, kind of protect your information, um, how much does that impede being able to work together and collaborate in the way that maybe the industry needs to. Yeah, I, I don't think that's we've been doing this a long time, whether it's the whether it's Textile Exchange, who I used to work for, whether it's the Outdoor Industry Association Sustainability Working Group, whether it's the SAC, we know about collaboration and everybody that's been involved in these competitors, we found a way over the years to collaborate just fine. And I don't believe it's mysterious at all where we need to work. Uh, it's energy, water, waste, chemicals, land use, biodiversity. This is not, to Morton's comment before, I agree most industries are complex, but what smart people do is distill that down into simplicity and focus on things that matter. We know what matters. What happens is with collaboration, my experience in the SAC, OIA, SWG, and others over the years is we we end up preaching to the choir. So we've got all the sustainability people and leads from brands and suppliers, and it's great. And we all pat each other on the back and do these working groups and blah, blah, blah. And I think it's great. And we get a lot of good information and sharing out of it. But it breaks down to my prior point is 
in the blood and guts and the belly of these organizations. It's still at the margin. So we know that let's just take materials. Okay. There's really three materials that comprise 99% of global textile fabrication, cotton, synthetics, primarily polyester, and man-made cellulosics like rayon, viscose, lyocell. Three fibers that comprise 99% of global textile fabrication, apparel, footwear, home textiles. It's not rocket science. We should focus on those. How do we drive out the, the conventionals and bring in what we largely know are preferred, regenerative, organic, recycled, um, preferred lyocells? It's not hard. It's making those commitments to have 100% sustainable cotton by X year, 100% recycled synthetics by X year, 100% preferred lyocells and viscoses by X year. That's it. Similarly with chemistry, and we haven't talked about chemistry. Chemistry is a horrible, horrible uh, issue in our, our industry. And ZDHC is leading the pathway. But we've probably got 75% of industry level chemicals that are not managed that are that you name it in production whether it's a spinner the weaver particularly the wet processing and dye houses and finishers that's largely unmanaged and largely uncommitted by those in the industry we can do that it's not hard it's chemistry and similarly with land use issues and similarly with water issues so to answer your question is we it's not about competition it's about actually from the collaborative work that we've done in LCA and all the things we've learned over 20 years, it's actually implementing and staying focused on the things that we know matter and getting those mainstreamed across the entire industry. So hopefully that answers your question. It does. And it, Maybe, I mean, can, it, I, can I chime in here? Sure. Just to say, I mean, I think that's that's what we found in the poultry poll. What you say, yes, we, uh, we have the... The, the people who are already doing preaching to the choir, but and we had the forty percent who are doing nothing. And then how do we work with them? And I think that's where legislation comes in. I mean, if we don't reward the companies who are doing what you're saying, using the preferred materials, and make the other ones more expensive, I don't see it happening for the companies who are who are doing nothing today. I think we need need some legislation that is really helping this transition to take place as well. Yeah, and 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 I agree with that, but. But Morton, we all know there are some pretty major brands, and and let's they can remain nameless. Um, ones that probably aren't even on our radar screen. But when you look at the volume of apparel, let's just stick with apparel that's out there. They're huge, and they're doing zero. I mean, if you look, if you actually, if you look at their product, and you look at what's on their product, it it you know just on the material standpoint, there's. There's nothing. You're using all conventional materials, conventional cotton, conventional polyester, conventional nylon, conventional rayon and viscose, et cetera. It's not, there's a huge chunk of big, big brands and big, big players out there that are doing nothing, you know, and, and I agree. I mean, CNAs and H&Ms and Nikes, you know, I mean, obviously Patagonias, they're out there for sure. But when you look at overall global production, there's still a whole bunch of missing folks not engaged in the work. 
So, yeah, so that actually leads to uh, a report that Sourcing Journal did uh, back in March, and we polled the industry. And one of the things that we found is that one of the big motivators for change is consumer pressure. So kind of, Jeff, what you were saying in terms of the Everlanes and the Patagonias of the world, helping to get that message out there has, you know, educated the consumer to an extent, but there's still more that needs to be done. What should the industry be doing in terms of educating the consumer so that they're making the right choices when they go to shop? <laughs> well, you you asked me a question that's really near and dear to me, and and um, I take a weird, different take on this. Is I, I I believe in an educated and informed consumer, but I think the data research shows that there's only a point where we can message to the consumer, and I'm speaking broadly. Sure, there are the you know, the quote unquote green greens, uh, and let's just say customers of, for example, Patagonia, who care deeply about this. It's very important for them. They're informed, they're educated. But most of mainstream people, you know, they just want to buy clothes, right? Just like they want to buy food and they want to buy all the things that they buy. And they don't want to be inundated with, in, with information and, and all of that. So I think we've yet to find out where that, that sweet spot is. But to me, the more important thing is, is that, you know, we don't, we, we've continued to ask consumers whether they want this, how much they want it, how much more they're willing to pay. To me, those are absurd questions. As an industry, as, as, as an industry, we just need to own this. We know that we've got production that hurts people. We know that we've got, you know, there's slave labor out there. We know there's child labor out there. We know there's unsafe factories that people working. We know that there's toxic and hazardous chemicals that are being used. We know there's biodiversity. We know there's deforestation. But why do we have to ask, to me, we ask our customers, well, do you want a t-shirt that doesn't hurt people or a t-shirt that does hurt people? If you want a t-shirt that doesn't hurt people, how much more are you willing to pay for that? Are you kidding me? We just need to own building the t-shirt that doesn't hurt people and the environment and make that happen. What we can ask consumers is consider, do you need that t-shirt? Will you wear this t-shirt for the party this weekend, but also for the next uh, 10, 15 parties? But on the other hand, I think it's, we shouldn't, why should we expect people who want to pay more for a sustainable product? It should be the opposite way around. And when I look at the research we did, it found that around 7% said that this is really the number one uh, reason for buying clothes. I really actually don't believe that figure. I think it's much lower. But what we did see is that consumers will punish brands, but they will not reward them. So they will say, I'm not going to work buy from your brand because of whatever they have done. And then they will go to another one. And that's also what we find in our the interviews. Even the, the brands we talk to who are truly sustainable and communicate this, they find very few of their customers who will go into the <laughs> store and say, what was this product made of? I think there's more coming, but will it ever be number one criteria? Very rarely and only for a small niche population. Yeah. My only point on that is, and, and, and Morton, I agree with that. And as I said in the beginning, I do believe it, it's important for the industry to message information about this because we do, I, actually, I really do believe in an informed consumer making, you know, intelligent and informed choices about this. But but I, my sense of it is, is, and I've had this conversation with so many, we still get it today. Well, what's the return on investment? How much am I going to grow my client base by investing in X material or Y practice? Like, 
you, I, I think you're, you, you're approaching it the wrong way. You need to understand that the, the reason to do this is to build a better product, a more quality product, and one that doesn't use child labor, one that doesn't use slave labor, isn't emitting toxic and hazardous chemicals into the environment. I mean, I'm, I'm, I know I'm saying provocative stuff here, but the truth of the matter is, and people don't want to hear that, right? And this, if you, if you back to the traceability thing, if you actually go into these factories that we're talking about and you see what happens, then you understand. Yeah. It's very visceral, hmm. right? Yeah. And, no, I, and you, yeah. Go, go ahead, Martin. No, no, just saying, I mean, just a parallel at that uh, Copenhagen Fest in summer here in May, we were looking back. We, this was our 10 years anniversary, and we had a very big manufacturer up there who's been working on sustainability for years. And he was saying, so what was the biggest mistake? Well, he said, probably the biggest mistake, and this is the CEO of a, of a giant manufacturer, he said, the biggest mistake was when we started the sustainability work, we thought we would get more customers. We thought brands would actually reward us. He said, they didn't. But what we have today uses less water, less energy, et cetera, et cetera. So we are running a much better business. Right. And I think much of that can be applied to a brand also. Yes. And so just to wrap up, you know, Morton, you, you've addressed a few things. You've addressed the need for collaboration and for setting goals, et cetera. Are there any quick wins that you can kind of identify for maybe companies that are on the road, but as your report showed, not keeping pace? Is there anything where they can maybe leapfrog ahead? What's your suggestion there? I mean, for brands who haven't started, look at the CEO agenda. There's some very clear priorities on how to get started. I think that's one thing where my my expectations are high are also with investors. We see a lot of investors are starting when they are doing the due diligence, they are looking at this. And then we have a big focus on regulation working with the EU now. And what we're hearing is that there's a big appetite that we have not seen before for regulators to be able to make sure that we actually reward companies who are working on sustainability. I was at the Elang Magata Foundation, and there was a case by a new um, car manufacturer, and they're they're leasing out the cars. And you think that's you know that's a reason for them to manufacture a car that they can use again and again. But I, what I thought was really interesting is that he used the same model for his supply chain. So he was actually also leasing the brakes. So that made sure that the brake manufacturer had all the incentives to make sure that th those brakes would last for a long, long time. And the same with all the other parts. So these systems where we have incentives, where everybody has an incentive to make sure that you produce good stuff that's also sustainable and that will last for a long time. This is some of some of the incentives that we need and some of the business systems that we need in our in our industry as well. So Jeff, in addition to this idea of investors and regulators um, helping to guide the industry in the right direction. Do you have ideas on maybe some quick wins that could help in this area? Well, I'm going to sort of sound like a broken record a little bit here. It's focus on what matters. We largely know what matters um, in the near term. Um, you know, in, in, in the environment right now, I mean, particularly here in the U.S., and but I think it's global, there's instability. And some of that, I think, is affecting business decisions. We see it in our business I'm not sure that's going to settle anytime soon. I don't know that the regulatory environment is going to provide, you know, uh, an environment that's, you know, sort of constructive for this. So focus on what matters. We know what matters. Energy, water, waste, chemicals, land use, biodiversity. Do the things with materials, chemistry, social labor, 
that you can do now and we know are there adopt preferred materials you know become a member of zdhc adopt the pathway forward level one level two level three conformance with your suppliers and chemical suppliers um those are the things that matter near term i think we kind of also tough have to walk and chew gum at the same time and that is invest in some of these new opportunities so technologies that can advance traceability and transparency i'll just use one blockchain but a lot of other things, remote sensing, artificial intelligence, technologies that can help us manage this data and manage the system in a, a more real-time way with a sh better trust, credibility, and assurance. Things that, it, like I think Morton referred to, looking at new models that help with durability of products. So if those are leasing models, take-back models, what have you. Um, and also, uh, I think, you know, some of the um, <laughs> we've got to figure out the post-consumer textile waste thing with 85 percent of our textiles going to landfill incineration. We've just got to spend some time and money figuring out how to get those post-consumer feedstocks back into the system. That's a huge thing for me is how do we solve that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, if only the industry would use all the technologies that are out there today. That would make a huge impact. And I think maybe one other thing, if you're just starting out, don't try to solve this yourself. Please, as, as you said, Jeff, join something, some in the existing initiative and, and be a part of that. Great. Thank you, Jeff and Morton. I really appreciate you joining us today. And this is an obviously an ongoing conversation as we try to continue to educate the industry, the 60% that are on the road and try to inspire the 40% that haven't started yet. This podcast episode is a companion to Sustaining Voices, Sourcing Journal's celebration of the efforts the apparel industry is making towards securing a more environmentally responsible future through creative innovations, scalable solutions, and forward-thinking initiatives that are spitting intent into action. Learn more at sustainingvoices.com. And if you're listening to this podcast and are new to Sourcing Journal, be sure to sign up for our newsletters at sourcingjournal.com so you can learn more about these topics and be among the first to know about new podcasts, webinars, and reports. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.